Well, good morning, everybody, and again, welcome to Hawaii Church. It is so good for all of you uh, to be here this morning. I hope that uh, you are here, uh, as we all are, I think, to worship our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, would you please open your Bibles uh, to the Gospel according to Luke chapter 19, uh, verses 41 through 48, which can be found on page 879 in the Bibles that are under your seats. Again, that's Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 48. This can be found on page 879 in the Bibles that are under your seat. Now, before we read this passage, would you uh, please bow your heads with me as we open our time in a word of prayer. King of heaven, we do ask that you would come down and that you would speak to us this morning through your word. We know, God, that there are so many things going on in this world right now that would be fearful, that, Lord, we question, that we wonder about, that we have no idea about what's going on sometimes, and yet, Lord, we know that you do. We know that you are sovereign over all creation, and so we look to you as our king, as the one who can help us, as the one who has helped us, as the one who sent his only son to die for us. And I pray this morning, Lord, even as we begin to look into your word, to once again be reminded of who you are as our king, that it would be by your spirit that you would minister to us, that you would speak to our hearts, and that you would help us, Lord, to truly see who you are in the beauty of your word. We need you, Lord. We ask for your help. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 48 says this. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Through our passage this morning, along with what we learned last week uh, regarding Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, we gain insight into the character and into the heart and into the nature of our true King. And what stands out immediately as we look at these passages is that Jesus is a different kind of King. Our King is not like other kings. For he is not a king who is concerned with lavish pomp and circumstances, nor is he interested in power, wealth, and riches. He doesn't concern himself with political maneuvering or military strategies and armies. Rather, we find a king who is humble and meek and whose heart breaks 
for the lost sinner who has a passion, even a violent passion, for the purity of the worship of his temple and an unshakable determination to seek and to save the lost. Our king is not like other kings. He is a different kind of king. And as, he, as followers of his, he calls us to be a different kind of people. Let's look at our passage again, starting in verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. We start by reading just this one verse because we need to pause right here so that we don't miss the stark contrast of the scene that we are seeing right here compared to what came immediately before. The change in the mood is drastic. For if you remember last week, Pastor Dan taught us about the humble king riding in on a, uh, into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey and how his disciples and the crowds of people heading into Jerusalem to observe the Passover were crying out, rejoicing and praising God to celebrate Jesus. They were spreading their cloaks on the road. They were cutting down branches from trees, spreading them out before Jesus. And as we know from Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel of this triumphal entry, the people were crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The word Hosanna comes from a Hebrew word meaning save now or save us, we pray. By crying out Hosanna in conjunction with King David's kingdom, the Jews were acknowledging Jesus as their Savior Messiah. They knew the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7 in which God promised King David that the Messiah would come through his family and that he would establish a kingdom that would endure forever. And so now as the Jews become aware that this is Jesus of Nazareth riding into Jerusalem, and they remember his reputation as a miracle man who has the power to heal the blind and raise people from the dead, as they realize that they are seeing Jesus riding into Jerusalem on this young colt, they start shouting, Hosanna! Because they are hopeful that their Messiah has finally come. Their Savior had finally arrived to save them from the oppression of Rome and to set up God's kingdom here on earth to rule over them as their all-powerful king. Now, in your mind's eye, you can probably imagine the loud, joyous, excited crowd. I mean, think about Jesus' own disciples. You can almost see their happy faces, smiles from ear to ear, joining in the celebration. The people finally know Jesus is finally allowing the crowds to see what we've known from the beginning, that he truly is the Son of God. Hallelujah, Hosanna. Excitement is filling the air. But then you get to the very next passage, our passage, verse 41 here, right here, and it says this. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. In stark contrast to the joyful celebration, the shouts of acclamation, and the exuberant praise of the crowd, Jesus begins to weep. And the word used here for weep is not the same word that was used in John eleven thirty five 35, when it says Jesus wept at the death of his friend Lazarus. In that verse, the word meant to weep and cry silently. 
In our passage today, the word wept means to weep aloud, expressing uncontrollable, audible grief. Jesus begins to sob uncontrollably as he laments over Jerusalem. This word weep is the same word used to describe Peter's anguish after he betrayed Jesus and denied him three times. Jesus is crying. There's no hiding this. It must have been obvious to all. Now imagine if you, again, were one of Jesus' disciples watching all of this unfold. What's going on? Why is Jesus crying? The stark contrast between the joyous crowds and weeping king, I think, is meant to jar us. We are meant to be shocked by this. And even as we read this 2,000 years later, I think we are intended to ask the same question, why? What is making King Jesus cry out with audible grief? Look at verse 42. Jesus wept over the city, saying, Would you, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Jerusalem, the city of God, the holy city, the city of David, Zion, even Jerusalem, whose name means possession of peace, even you, Jerusalem, do not know the things that make for peace. Jesus is not overjoyed or thrilled by the exuberant response of the people because he knows they do not understand. They are cheering in ignorance. They were rejoicing for the wrong reasons. The people were expecting Jesus to enter into Jerusalem as an earthly king, powerful and mighty, to overthrow Rome and usher in a new blessed kingdom of God on earth. They had no idea that this is not how the kingdom of God would come into the world. They had no idea that the kingdom of God would come into the world not by force and power, but by suffering and death. Jesus knows that in just a few short days, some, if not many, of these same people cheering for him now will be shouting for him to be crucified. They are fickle, ignorant people, motivated only by what they think is going to benefit them. As soon as that benefit is gone, as soon as it becomes clear that Jesus is not who they thought he was, as soon as the benefits of Jesus are removed, the same zeal behind their adoration becomes the zeal that fuels their hatred. And it is so sad because this is how people responded then, and it's the same way they respond toward Jesus today. There are those who are remorseful over their sins, mostly because they've been caught and are now paying the consequences for them. They are miserable. Sin does that. And so when these people hear the gospel, that there is mercy and forgiveness in Christ, they initially jump all over it and they praise Jesus. But give it some time. Let these same people start to hear the same Jesus teaching them hard truths about the kingdom of God, that in order to follow him, they must repent 
and turn away from their sins. They must deny themselves. They must take up their crosses and follow him. They must love their enemies, consider others as more important than themselves. They must wash each other's feet. They must forgive those who have wronged them, not just once, not seven times, but keep on forgiving. As soon as they realize that believing in Jesus is not just about being on the receiving end of his love and mercy and forgiveness. As soon as they realize that believing in Jesus means that they are expected to extend that same love, grace, and forgiveness to others. As soon as they realize that Jesus is more than just love, mercy, and forgiveness, that he is also holy, righteous, and just, and he expects obedience. As soon as they realize that Jesus is not who they initially thought he was, what happens? They fall away. They always do. The shouts of praise and adoration turns to shouts of crucify him. I know a man who at one time claimed to love Jesus. He talked about Jesus all the time with great zeal and emotion. But he had a faulty view of Jesus. He believed that faith in Jesus means uh, for him to gain great wealth and avoid suffering and pain. But then tragedy struck his life, and no matter how much faith he claimed to have, no matter how hard he prayed, someone very near to him died. And along with this death, his so-called faith died with it. He no longer believes and is, in fact, right now, very bitter towards God and wants nothing to do with Him. And I'm sure you know people like this as well. Jesus certainly does. He knows all of this. He knows the fickleness, the self-centeredness, the ignorance of the human heart. And so in spite of the cheering crowds, in spite of the exuberant and joyous praise, Jesus weeps. He sobs over the city of Jerusalem. But he he doesn't weep just because he's feeling sorry for himself. Jesus doesn't weep out of self-pity. Oh, nobody knows who I truly am. No, he weeps for the fickle, selfish people who will one day crucify him because they are hopelessly lost. Jesus weeps for the lost. And this should tell us something very, very important about the heart of the true king. He cares not for empty worship and meaningless praise. Rather, the true king cries for the lost. Charles Spurgeon says this about our crying king. Looked he ever more kingly than when he showed the tenderness of his heart towards his rebellious subjects. The city which had been the metropolis of the house of David never saw so truly a royal man before, for he is fittest to rule who is most ready to sympathize. He is fittest to rule who is most ready to sympathize. Can you think of a more beautiful way to describe our king? A true king must have compassion a sympathetic king who understands our weaknesses. He knows that we are but dust. We are a sinful people, and yet he is still merciful and loving and kind. Our king is not like other kings. But it's not just out of pity and sympathy that Jesus weeps. 
He weeps not only because the people are lost, but because they were so close to being found. They were so close to the very thing that would bring them peace. They were so close to Jesus, the Prince of Peace himself, the very person who could bring them the most important kind of peace, which was peace with God. You see, true and lasting peace, eternal peace, can only come when we are at peace with our Creator. And to be at peace with God, we must deal with the root issue of all of our problems, which is sin. Because all sin, ultimately, is sin against God. When King David committed adultery with Bathsheba and then had her husband Uriah killed to cover up his sin, David's prayer in Psalm 51.4 was, Against you, God, against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Yes, David sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah, but he understood that all sin is ultimately against God. And so we must deal with our sin. Until we deal with our sin, you will never have true and lasting peace because you will never have peace with God. But it gets even worse. For the Bible makes it very clear that the penalty of sin is always death. God is an eternal and infinite being. And as a result, sin against an infinite God requires an infinite punishment. And the only way to pay the infinite penalty for sin is to, one, pay it yourself, spending an eternity in hell, or two, putting your faith in Jesus Christ, the infinite, perfect, holy King, who willingly went to the cross to give his life as a substitute for sinners. What kind of king does this? He paid our infinite penalty, and anyone who places their faith in him will have their sins forgiven and be saved. That is his promise. When we place our faith in Christ, the Bible says we are justified before God, meaning our sins have been forgiven and we are made right with our Creator. This is why it says in Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The thing that makes for peace is Jesus Christ Himself knowing and believing in him as the king who saves you from your sins. But the Jews could not do it. They would not do it. They rejected the things that made for peace by refusing to bow the knee before their true king. Now, you might recall in Luke chapter 13, Jesus on another occasion lamented over Jerusalem, saying this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. As patient and as kind and as merciful as God is, there comes a time for everyone when the judgment of God falls upon the unrepentant. Jerusalem rejected Jesus Christ, their Messiah and King, and for this reason they were forsaken and condemned. Look at verse 43. 
For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus weeps for Jerusalem because he prophetically knows the harsh judgment that will come upon the city of God for their refusal to accept their king. Some 40 years later, in response to a Jewish revolt, the Roman general Titus surrounded the city of God, built huge siege works around it before finally invading and destroying Jerusalem in 70 AD. With satanic fury, Titus tore down almost every single building in the city. He killed men, women, and children before burning everything to the ground. The heat from the fires caused the gold and silver in the temple to melt down between the stones so that the Roman soldiers, in their attempt to retrieve the precious metal, did not leave one stone upon another, just as Jesus had prophesied. God sent his only son, Jesus, into the world to save lost sinners, but God's own people, the Jews, failed to recognize him. They failed to recognize the time of their visitation. And, their cons- and the consequence to their willful ignorance, their purposeful rejection of their Savior would result in a final judgment that would once and for all destroy the Jewish temple. And for the past 2,000 years, it has never been rebuilt. And this should tell us something else about our King. As sympathetic and kind and merciful and patient as is our God, He is also perfectly holy and perfectly just. And there comes a time when severe and final judgment falls upon the unrepentant, and God chooses to hide the things that make for peace, locking the sinner forever in eternal condemnation. As John Piper puts it, the hen with outspread and beckoning wings has become a roaring lion. There is a too late In dealing with God, he may stretch out his wings to you and beckon you again and again to take refuge in his mercy, but there will come a point when the beckoning ceases and the sentence is passed and it is too late. This is what happened to the Jews, God's own people, and this is why Jesus weeps. And so, my friends, If you are hearing these words this morning and you are not a believer in Christ, if you have not repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, then please hear these words. Do not ignore the time of your visitation. I beseech you, be reconciled with God. Put your faith in Jesus Christ today. Do this before it's too late. Do this before the things that make for peace are hidden from you forever. But if you're hearing these words of mine this morning and you are a believer, then let me ask you what might be a very sobering question. When was the last time you cried and lamented and sobbed for people who are lost in their sins and destined to an eternity in hell? 
What does it say about the depth to which we know and share our Savior's heart if we don't know and share his love, care, and concern for the lost? J.C. Ryle said, we know little of true Christianity if we do not feel a deep concern about the souls of unconverted people. Jesus weeps for the lost, and so should we, even for those who would reject and crucify him. Our king is merciful, but our king is also perfectly just, and unlike so many of our leaders today, he is perfectly holy, incorruptible, and therefore he cannot turn a blind eye to our sin and will not put up with our sinful ways indefinitely. Again, our king is not like other kings. Now, before we move on to verse 45, I think it would be helpful to remind you of the scripture verse that Josh read to you earlier from Isaiah 55. It says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The implications of this verse is that what is important to man is not always important to God, and what is important to God is not always important to man. But God's ways are higher than our ways, and his thoughts are higher than ours. And I make this point because although the Jews wanted an earthly king to overthrow Rome, this was not the purpose and plan of God. Jesus' focus is not on social and political reform, but rather on spiritual reform. His focus is not on Roman oppression, but rather on his people's relationship to God and their worship of him. For God is seeking true worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And so as John MacArthur says in relation to our next verses, 45 and 46, he says this, Jesus doesn't come to Jerusalem to attack the Romans. He doesn't come to overthrow the occupiers and usher in a new political system. He doesn't address the iniquities brought about by Rome. He doesn't destroy the occupying forces. Instead, Jesus attacks the temple. Look at verse 45. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. When Jesus enters the temple grounds, what he sees happening there fills him with righteous anger. The temple had become a place of corrupt salesmen and money changers. The huge outer court, which was known as the court of the Gentiles, had been turned into a business center that sold animals, wine, salt, oil, and anything else that that was required for temple worship, all at jacked-up prices. There were also the money changers who had changed the Roman currency into Tyrrhenian coinage, which which was required for worshipers to pay the one half shekel temple tax. Again, they would add a large fee to the exchange rate, thus making a profit off of worshipers who simply wanted to worship their God. Jesus' earlier tears over the lostness of the people of God now turns to righteous anger, and he attacks the very source of Israel's spiritual problems, the unholy worship that was occurring in the temple. 
In Matthew's telling of this story, he says that Jesus threw chairs and he overturned tables. Luke simply says that Jesus began to drive out those who sold. Now, the verb Luke uses to, for driving out is the same word that is used elsewhere in the Gospels for casting out demons. Can you imagine what this must have looked and felt like? The Son of God, so gentle and so kind, is now angry. Remember, this is not a sinful anger. Jesus never sinned. This is righteous, holy fury against that which is evil. Now, estimates vary, but I think it's safe to say that there were hundreds of thousands of people in Jerusalem during this special season, many coming from far away countries to celebrate the Passover. And the temple must have been jam-packed with both worshipers as well as those who were trying to make a profit off of them. So the question comes to my mind is this. How can one man clear the temple? Matthew tells us that Jesus cleared out all who sold. And Mark adds that he wouldn't allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. They couldn't even take their stuff out of there. How could one person do this? One ordinary man possibly couldn't, but we are not talking about an ordinary man. Imagine having the power to cast out demons, the power to calm a raging storm with just a word, the power to raise the dead back to life, and now imagine that that power is angry. Do you think anyone could stop him? Do you think anyone would even try? I think the sellers and the money changers were scared out of their wits. You know, we don't often think about Jesus this way, do we? Righteously angry with a holy fury. This is not the Jesus we often think about. But maybe we should. We should at least ask ourselves, what makes Jesus so angry? I think our answer comes from what Jesus says. My house shall be called a house of prayer. Now, when he said this, Jesus was quoting a passage from Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7. But let me read to you Isaiah 56, verses 6 and 7, because I think we need to see the fuller context of this passage so that we can better understand why Jesus is so upset. Isaiah 56, verses 6 through 7 says this, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. In this passage, we can see that Isaiah is talking about foreigners outside of the nation of Israel being brought into the house of God. Isaiah is prophesying about the future evangelization of the world in which foreigners, Gentiles, you and Gentiles, you and me, 
Most of us in this room who are not Jewish, but nevertheless love the Lord, would one day be brought by God to his holy mountain and made joyful as we worship God in his house of prayer. God's house from its very beginning was intended to be a place of worship for the entire world. But how is this going to happen if God's house has been turned into a den of robbers? Now, when Jesus used the phrase den of robbers, he was, robbers, he was quoting from Jeremiah 7, verse 11. And again, it's super helpful to better understand Jesus' anger when we see the context of this verse in Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 8 through 11, the prophet Jeremiah is standing at the gate of the temple and he's preaching against the wickedness of the men of Judah. Hear what he says. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord." The men of Judah were doing all kinds of wicked things in their everyday life and then coming into the temple as though they had done nothing wrong. Instead of coming into God's house to repent and seek the Lord's mercy, they enter into his house and say, we are delivered, we're safe here. But then they go out and continue to do all of their abominations. They were using the temple of God as a spiritual safe house. They were living wicked, evil lives and then coming to church and going through the motions to worship, thinking that this would save them. We're safe. They were religious hypocrites. And the Lord says, Behold, I myself have seen it. Jesus sees all of these things happening right before him in the temple. He saw it in his day and he sees it today. Brothers and sisters, you cannot live like an unbeliever throughout the week and then come to church on Sunday and go through the motions of worship and think that Jesus doesn't see right through your facade. In our passage today, this kind of religious hypocrisy is what fills Jesus with righteous rage. I think Ligon Duncan puts it well when he says this. Religious hypocrisy is just as dangerous today as it was 2,000 years ago. Going through the motion, saying that we're worshiping the Lord, gathering in his name, and yet living as if he is not our Lord, not worshiping him in the whole of our lives. Religious hypocrisy is a reality, and Jesus was indicting his own people in his own time, and he's warning us about it as well. Now, we ought to remember that in the Gospels, Jesus reserves his most scathing denunciations for the hypocritical scribes and Pharisees. When you read Matthew chapter 23, Jesus pronounces woe upon woe upon woe on these religious leaders because of their hypocrisy. Our God, our King, seeks true worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And it angers him when we profane the worship of God through religious hypocrisy. 
And isn't it interesting that even above social and political reform, even more important than overturning Roman oppression, Jesus, during the last week of his life, focuses his time and his energy on ensuring that true worship is occurring in his Father's house. Our King is not like other kings. Brothers and sisters, take heed. Let's make sure that we understand what is most important to our King. Finally, look at verses 47 and 48, and we'll close with this. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. With a few short days that he has left, before he is arrested, unjustly tried, condemned, tortured, and crucified on a cross, Luke tells us Jesus spent his last moments teaching in the temple daily. In the face of impending death, Jesus the King does not muster his army. He does not strategize or plan. He does not try to sue for peace or run away. Our King is not like other kings. Instead, Jesus goes to the temple daily to teach. You see, Jesus doesn't just clean out his father's house and then leave it empty. He fills it with the most worshipful, most important thing, which is God's word, the gospel message of hope. Unfortunately, unfortunately, then, even as it is now, there are those who adamantly refuse the things which make for peace. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. They couldn't out-argue him. They couldn't prove him wrong. They couldn't handle the truth he was preaching, and they couldn't stand being called hypocrites, so they thought, sought to destroy him. And today, it's no different. We have people in high positions, government leaders, learned scholars, famous celebrities, star athletes, who, like their doomed predecessors before them, refuse to repent and cry out for mercy. They reject their Savior and are unwilling to recognize him as king. And so they argue, they mock, they condemn, and they verbally crucify the Lord of glory, the one person who can give them true peace. And although this can be so frustrating and so enraging for us, do not respond like the world, for you are different from the world. Rather than lash out at the ignorant, be like your king. Rather than hate, have compassion. Rather than fight, weep for them. And rather than argue, as we see here in verse 48, render them impotent by worshiping your God, by hanging on to his every word. Brothers and sisters, our king is not like other kings. He is a different kind of king. And as his followers, he calls us to be different kind of people. Amen? Please pray with me. Father, again, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And we thank you, God, for the way you teach us. 
for the way you continue to help us to see you for who you truly are. And Lord, I pray that in the seeing, as you would speak to our hearts, convict our hearts, encourage our hearts, motivate our hearts, I pray, God, that you would continue to conform us to the image of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to be like our King Jesus. Help us to look to him and to him only for our help. And help us, Father, to trust in him in every aspect of our lives. We thank you so much for this morning, Lord. We love you so much. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.